Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Max Kaiser. We have a great show for you today. With us, we have Jennifer Glazer, Associate Professor of English and Comparative Literature and an affiliate faculty member in Judaic Studies and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at the University of Cincinnati, Ohio. She's here to talk about her new book, Borrowed Voices, Writing and Racial Ventriloquism in the Jewish American Imagination. It was published in 2016 by Rutgers University Press. Jennifer, thanks very much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's exciting to talk to you all the way in Australia. Fantastic. Um, First off, could you just tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book? Absolutely. Um, I began the book a number of years ago, um, and, and when I did begin it, it was actually during the time of the waning days of the Iraq War, and I was thinking a lot at that time of uh, Jewish neoconservatives and um, Jewish neoconservatism and sort of the idea of who spoke for Jewish Americans at the time. So that was one of my motivating interests. Um, The other was really an interest in how Jewish American writers interacted with issues around race um, and racialization in the United States. And I thought that there had been amazing work on that topic really pertaining to the late 19th century and early 20th century during the the era of mass immigration by many Jews to the United States. But there had been less of a focus on how Jews thought about race in the late 20th century and early 21st century. So I wanted my book to redress that uh, comparative absence, Um, as well as I was really interested in, and, and we could talk more about this when we talk in more depth about the book, in the issue of how... Jews were invested in questions of appropriation. By that, I mean uh, the issue of speaking from the perspective of another in literary form or as as we would think of it in, let's say, a cinematic context, donning the race of another uh, when we talk about blackface or yellowface or redface. And I wanted to think about why so many Jewish writers were really in, invested in debates about racial appropriation um, in, in the late 20th and early 21st century. So those three issues combined to very much 
intrigued me on this question of how I could write about uh, Jews and race. Right. So the first chapter of your book starts with a very controversial essay by Hannah Arendt. Um, tell us about this essay and how your discussion of it leads into uh, a discussion of Bernard Malamud's novel, The Tenants. And what do both these texts tell us about the changing racial discourse in the United States at the time and the place of Jews within it? Thanks for asking. Um, that Both of those texts are somewhat controversial, and I was excited to write about them together. Um, Hannah Arendt's piece, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, was written a bit earlier than some of the other texts I look at in the book. It was written in 1959, um, during the height of debates about desegregation in the United States, um, particularly the, the question of how do we desegregate our schools? Should the federal government be involved in that? And Hannah Arendt, in contrast to most of her more liberal um, or progressive ideas, did not believe the federal government should be involved in desegregation. And when she made this sort of controversial argument, she did so by saying, I, as a Jew, take my sympathy for the Negro for granted, and I assume that everybody who reads this should. Um, so she essentially felt that she could speak for um, African Americans in the United States at that time. And as you can imagine, that was controversial even then, um, p particularly because what she was voicing was quite a controversial uh, perspective about desegregation. So I was really interested in that move of, of a post-war Jewish intellectual uh, feeling that that her sympathy, as she put it, for the as she put it, quote unquote, for the Negro should be taken for granted, and I wanted to pair that with literary texts uh, from the post-war period, particularly then looking at a little bit later period of the late 1960s um, and early 1970s. So I paired that with Bernard Malamud's *The Tenants*, and *The Tenants* is really a crazy book. <laughs> um, I would highly recommend reading it if for no other reason than it's so strange. Um, it's a book about a black and a Jewish writer um, published in 1970, and it diverges greatly from most of Malamud's previous work. Um, he, prior to that, had written um, what we might think of as sort of ironic, smart fables about Jewish identity. Um, and suddenly in this book, he writes this very vitriolic portrait of black Jewish relations in the United States in which an African-American writer and a Jewish writer um, are in a fight for primacy in the literary, literary realm and the erotic realm and it ends in actual violence. Um, what made this text particularly interesting to me is that I was looking in the archives of the Harry Ransom Center at the University of Texas at Austin, and I saw in the Bernard Malamud papers that he had had a lengthy correspondence um, with an African-American writer named James Allen McPherson um, about the tenants, in which he had asked McPherson to read an early version of the tenants and give him pointers about how to write in the black vernacular. So it, was, it very much dramatized in a particular way these questions of a Jewish writer trying to actually speak in the argot of the other um, and trying to speak about black identity from the actual perspective of a black writer. And he did so in a pretty inelegant way. But what was really interesting is I thought that what a lot of what he was doing there was not really speaking about black identity, but speaking about Jewish identity. 
and using the otherness of the black character to really comment on the waning of Jewish difference in the United States. Um, so that's one of the central points that I developed throughout the book is this idea that Jews are so interested and Jewish writers in particular in the otherness of various characters, because it's a way of speaking about the otherness of Jews um, in the United States. So in chapter two, you take up the issue of interracial marriage, and you suggest that a number of um, Jewish women writers have inverted or rewritten Jewish American and larger American gender scripts as they cross the color line. Um, tell us about the text you look at here and, and about your argument. Thank you. And it's so nice to hear someone articulate your argument well <laughs> for you. Thank you. Uh, so that chapter, I was really interested in some Jewish women writers who aren't normally written about, one of whom is Hetty Jones, um, who is most famous in a way, in a problematic way, for who she was married to during the period. That's um, Leroy Jones, or as we knew him later, Amiri Baraka, the very well-known African-American poet, playwright, and intellectual. Um, and she wrote a memoir about her life growing up and her marriage to Baraka. Um, called How I Became Hetty Jones. And it it looks at her, her transformation from Hetty Cohen to Hetty Jones. But what I thought was really interesting about this text is that she uses it to, to really speak about not only her own sense of racial otherness throughout her life, um, being in, in encounters with sort of WASP American culture in the South and elsewhere, but also how her marriage to Baraka and her um, role as a mother to two interracial children affected her sense of being a woman and how it, it aided her in thinking about herself and her place in the world differently and allowed her to get outside of some of the kind of narrower scripts of Jewish American womanhood that she felt um, she had been consigned to. And I paired this with a book that I think is also really interesting and not read nearly enough, um, which is Laura Siegel's Her First American. And it's a great novel written um, about an interracial relationship in the 1950s, um, in a period that, that did not have quite as many interracial relationships as we have now. This is pre-Loving versus Virginia. Um, and it really tells the story of a Jewish woman, a refugee um, from Hitler's Europe, who meets an African-American intellectual in New York City and falls in love with him and how this affects her sense of her own American identity, how it teaches her to understand and critique American racial scripts, but also to understand her own, um, her own gender differently and her own place differently. And I found both Siegel's work, um, which is also loosely autobiographical, and um, and Jones's work to be really innovative um, and interesting in how they positioned Jewish identity as a kind of racial identity, um, particularly by pairing it with with gender identity. Okay, so you you then turn to an examination of representations of the Holocaust. And you suggest that following the 1967 Six-Day War, Jewish-American authors tackled representations of the Holocaust in new ways, um, and that this was intimately related to a re-racialization of Jewishness. Um, can you tell us a bit about this? 
Absolutely. Um, that chapter was very much influenced by a historian named Peter Novick, who wrote an amazing book called The Holocaust in American Life. Um, and that book looks at the Americanization of the Holocaust, so to speak, the way in which the Holocaust has been taken up by um, the wider American culture in a very intimate way, particularly starting in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Um, and he, he has a lot of arguments about why that's the case, but the one that I found most interesting, um, kind of a sideline to his main argument, was that it had something to do with uh, American difficulty dealing with their own more um, more local tragedies such as slavery and Native American removal. Um, so it was easier to think about the Holocaust, so to speak, um, as well as it had to do with the complexities of, of identity politics and the rise of thinking about identity in different ways during the same time period. And so I was really interested in how Jewish American writers who were themselves so very invested in the question of what does it mean to be Jewish in post-war America, are Jews becoming, uh, to use the anthropologist Karen Brodkin's term, are they becoming white folks? And how that crossed over with representations of the Holocaust. Um, and, and when I looked at some of the works that, that um, I talk about in that chapter, I found that we could label Holocaust fiction, a lot of works that we don't normally think of as being about the Holocaust. Um, and in that case, I look at um, works by Saul Bellow and Cynthia Ozick, and thinking about, in those cases, how they really bring together um, the idea that the Jewish identity in America is racialized alongside representations of the Holocaust. And I do think that the role of Israel in the Six-Day War as being, um, as using kind of a rhetoric of the extinction of the Jews has a place in that as well. So uh, in the next chapter, you move on to talk about Philip Ross, The Human Stain, and you say that it's representative of Jewish-American writers' preoccupation with discourses of cosmopolitanism, interracial anxiety, and transracial masquerade in the 80s and 90s, um, and as expre their expressions of um, anxieties that are attended to their liminal position in American literary history and multicultural discourse. Tell us a bit about um, about this. Yeah, that, that chapter was one I was particularly interested in because I'm very interested in the 1980s and 1990s in the United States and what has come to be called the canon and culture wars. Um, something that I think in an interesting way we're seeing a revival of in our contemporary period. But it was a period during which some of the hottest political debates were not about economics um, or about the role of government in people's lives, but was instead were instead about culture and this question of what should we teach in the university, what sorts of arts organizations should we support. Um, and so some of those debates really hinged on the question of the canon, the idea that do we teach the great old white male masters um, from Shakespeare and, uh, you know, later on um, 
Joyce and Faulkner um, and Hemingway and Fitzgerald, um, or do we try to change a bit our idea of what we teach to university students to make it more diverse um, or more aware of gender or race? Um, and so I was really interested in that question, how it divided many intellectuals in the public sphere, and then how it influenced Jewish American writers like Roth, who I think is really a lightning rod for uh, debates in, in the Jewish American community from the time of his first work in Goodbye Columbus. Um, so um, in the work that I focus on the most in that chapter, The Human Stain, he invents a character who is purportedly Jewish, but is, as you find out during the course of the novel, um, spoiler alert, um, actually an African-American man who is passing and who has lived his entire life um, kind of undercover as a Jewish intellectual. And I became very interested in, in that idea and what it said about Roth's own interest in speaking about Jewish identity and in speaking about the, what he perceived to be the waning of the disinterested universalist intellectual during an era of rising identity politics. Um, and what this said about Roth's own position within the literary canon or his own anxieties about where he would fit into the multicultural canon um, in the period, the late 1990s period during which he was writing this work. Um, and so I felt like it was a great work to really look at debates about race and the culture wars and the canon wars in the U.S. during that 1990s period. In the final chapter, um, you weave together themes of race, territoriality, indigeneity, and diaspora. Um, can you tell us a bit about the texts you examine here um, and how they engage with these complex themes? That's definitely my most complicated <laughs> chapter, otherwise known as the last chapter in which you do far too much um, and bring too many texts together. Um, but I was very interested in the way in which we could look at um, questions of race and Jewish identity alongside issues of territoriality. Um, most obviously in debate in the Jewish American community about the role of Israel um, in Jewish American identity. Um, its continuing role, should there be quite so large a role, um, what does it mean to be a diasporic Jew versus to be a Jew who lives in Israel, um, and I thought that race was often inscribed into that debate in very interesting ways. So in that chapter, I looked at a number of texts. One was the film Munich, which was written um, by uh, Tony Kushner, the playwright, alongside uh, Eric Roth. And it was also um, directed by Steven Spielberg. So it had sort of really interesting, iconic Jewish artists involved with it. And I was very interested in how this film rewrote issues of Jewish racialization and Jewish identity. And I paired that with a few um, fictional works, one being... The great novel by Michael Shabon, um, The Yiddish Policeman's Union, which was about uh, what would have happened. It's sort of a, a speculative history. What would have happened if Jews were given a homeland in Alaska, in what was imagined to be the kind of blank space of Alaska uh, during World War II? Um, would it have affected, if, if you know, in this text, Israel fails, and Jews instead live in this 
semi-sovereign territory in Alaska. And so I was interested in what this said about about Israel and Jewish attitudes toward Israel, but I was also really interested in why Shabon pairs this um, this speculation with an interest in, in how Jews are or are not like native populations. So in this this book, he pairs Jews with the Inuit population, both to make a metaphor about Palestinians and Jews in Israel, but I thought also to think about Jewish identity in America and and questions of whether or not Jews could be thought to be to belong in a diasporic space um, and to, to think about them alongside Native American identity. And I was pairing that with a graphic narrative, a graphic novel by Ben Catcher, who is this amazing artist, um, who was very invested in the question of what an imaginary New York would have looked like in the 19th century, as well as what an imaginary homeland for the Jews would have looked like during the same period. And he also creates a speculative history based on a real-life figure, in this case Mordecai Noah in the 19th century, who also has to interact with Native American populations um, and who also is thinking about the idea of creating a homeland for Jews in the United States. So in that, that chapter, I'm really thinking about ideas of um, a Jewish homeland and how they do or do not um, connect to ideas about Jewishness as a race. Um, well, thanks very much for um, joining us and talking about your um, book today, Jennifer. Um, it was a really fascinating um, overview of your book, um, and it's definitely um, made me, uh, inspired me to pick up a few of those texts that um, you talked about. Um, just before we let you go, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on next? Absolutely. Um, as that final chapter suggests, I tend to work on too many things at once <laughs> or have too many ideas of what I might want to work on at once. So there are a few projects I'm working on. Um, the one that I have most done on is actually a work on uh, graphic novels and graphic narratives. Working on The Ben Catcher really inspired me, and I've taught a number of courses on graphic narrative um, subsequent to that. And so I'm working on a book on uh, questions of race and comics, race and graphic narrative, and particularly thinking about the idea of how writers um, from someone like Ben Catcher and Jewish writers like Aileen Kominsky-Crum or Diane Newman to um, to writers like Matt Johnson and Warren Please who write about African-American identity, um, to Gene Yang who writes about Asian-American identity, how they have to contend with the history of caricature um, in their comics and what that inheritance is like. Um, I call the book tentatively graphic inheritances. So I'm thinking a lot about that. Um, and it allows me to continue my interest in race and um, the notions of how we are affected by history, as well as thinking in this case about visual culture. The other projects I'm interested in very, very beginning is that I'm really interested in how um, the history of genetics has affected literature, um, thinking about, I guess, the connections between science and literature and also ideas, again, about race and identity um, from the scientific realm affect our ideas about things like free will and inheritance and family and how that affects the literary realm. That's a really early project. Um, and the final thing I'm working on is I do creative writing as well. 
Um, and so I've written some pieces of, I guess, what will be called narrative nonfiction, um, sort of memoiristic literary works. And I'm working a bit on um, a project that will look at, um, a, a, at a particular event in my own life around the illness of a loved one and how that allows me to think more widely about the question of survivor's guilt, um, both from a Jewish context of, of Holocaust survivors like my, uh, my grandparents to thinking about um, the notion of surviving the death of loved ones for people in a more contemporary context. So that's my other, my other very tentative creative project as well. Well, they all sound like um, really interesting projects. Oh, thank um, you. So thanks once again for um, being with us, Jennifer. You've been listening to New Books in Jewish Studies with your host, Max Kaiser. Um, with us today, we had Jennifer Glazer, and she was talking to us about her new book, Borrowed Voices, Writing and Racial Ventriloquism. In the Jewish American Imagination, published in 2016 by Rutgers University Press. Thanks very much. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.